we had a, a, a guest in the audience this evening. And Vice President-elect Pence, I see you walking out, but I hope you will hear us just a few more moments. There's nothing to move here, ladies and gentlemen. There's nothing to move here. We're all here sharing a story of love. Well, then-newly elected Donald Trump had plenty to boo about the show and its cast. Highly overrated. Very rude. But if a show were done about Hamilton's economic policy, after all, he was the nation's first Treasury Secretary, the President might find much to applaud. How does a bastard? Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, Executive Editor for Global Economics in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an Economics Editor with Bloomberg in Washington. Well, little known amidst all the buzz that's been running for a couple of years now about Hamilton is his role as a protector of American manufacturing. He was, as I said, our nation's first Treasury Secretary. He wanted to protect industry in the fledgling United States of America. He wanted, now wait for this, to roll back globalization and replace foreign-made goods with domestically produced ones. Here to explain it is Rich Miller, an economics correspondent in Washington for Bloomberg, who wrote about this last week. Rich, it's great to have you back. Thanks very much for having me. Well, Rich, describe the scene for us. It wasn't China or bad hombres in Mexico, though the U.S. did have wars with Mexico. And, you know, there wasn't even really a rust belt, per se. What was going on economically at the time? What was happening was the U.S. was just coming out of the uh, Revolutionary War, the victorious Revolutionary War of the British. But what bothered Hamilton and George Washington was that the U.S. was heavily, heavily dependent on aid and help from France. And so... Anticipating the possibility of more conflict ahead, Washington asked Hamilton to develop a report to develop the fledgling U.S. manufacturing industry so that um, the U.S. would have its own uh, weapons, nails, clothes, and wouldn't be dependent on imports in case of a conflict. Hasn't the U.S. come a long way since then that, you know, for a while the U.S. was making this stuff? Then, you know, with, with the advent of global trade, rise of China in the last 20, 30 years, you know, a lot of this stuff has increasingly come from abroad. What What's the difference between the situation now and the situation 200-something years ago? <laughs> what isn't different, I guess, Scott, right? Well, now we have a multilateral trading system. Textiles were the big, big thing back then. And uh, Hamilton uh, advocated putting tariffs on imported textiles. Britain then tried to ban the um, export of uh, textile producing machines to the United States in kind of a early uh, mini trade war. But, uh, you know, now, of course, textiles are mostly made in, uh, as uh, uh, our president would say, China, as you say, and in other uh, areas where, where, you know, where the, where the cost of labor is cheaper. And some of it's moved on from China because parts of China are now too expensive. The margins don't justify making T-shirts for the malls in America. Uh, But you raise an interesting point. So for much of the, say, the post-1945 world economic history, the garment model has been the way nations have initially sort of industrialized 
and begun to escape poverty. If you wanted to be uncharitable, you'd call it a sort of a sweatshop model. Mm. So that was the way to go even then? That, that, was the, that was the way to go even then. I mean, there was also, you know, there was protection thrown on, on uh, tariffs on nails, for example, because, uh, you know, nails are very important in a whole bunch of, of, of things, including in weapons. But textiles was a big benefiter from the Hamilton's policy. Hamilton actually favored more subsidies to industries than tariffs, and the tariffs he recommended were relatively restrained for the for the for the time. But he, you know, he was opposed. Jefferson opposed him, and Jefferson had had, had initially at least had a vision of uh, the U.S. as an agrarian, you know, uh, economy, which it was basically then, and wanted to build up the farming side of the economy. Kind of funny when you think about it. The the musical Hamilton has become part of the our, our American culture now, and uh, this particular part of the of Hamilton's economic policy was not anywhere to be seen in the musical itself. I haven't seen it. Full disclosure, I've just listened to the soundtrack. Who can get uh, a ticket? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a whole other episode to be done the about the French. <laughs> you need a lot of money, uh, but. If the if the writers if if Lin Manuel Miranda who created the show had known about this, you know maybe it wouldn't have become more of a cultural touchstone, or it would become maybe even more of a debate, which which kind of leads me to thinking about the broader question of globalization. Is the advent of globalization a relatively recent phenomenon uh, in our world, or was was this something that has kind of come and gone over the last 220 years since the, the founding of the republic? We've had ebbs and flows in globalization, and uh, right now we seem to be uh, uh, having a, a, an ebb. The um, Trump policy is basically he wants to uh, replace imports with U.S.-made goods which is a real throwback to Hamilton and the sort of pre-globalization era. You know, China and Mexico have been cast for much of the past 18 months as the, quote, villains, Mm -hmm. unquote, in this narrative here. Who were the China and Mexicos back then? As far as the U.S. was concerned, Britain was was, was the main sort of villain, you know, we just fought a war with them, and uh, as I said, there was kind of this uh, that they were trying to prevent the U.S. from uh, developing its own industries through various means, uh, and and we had a subsequent war, the War of 1812. So they still, uh, Britain still had its uh, eyes on on getting back the colonies. It gives a whole other dimension to the phrase "bad hombres" when you think about <laughs> the British in the context of the Revolutionary War, War of eighteen twelve, and so on, doesn't it? Yeah, bad hombres probably doesn't describe the uh, how they were viewed by uh, Washington and uh, and others who sort of survived through Valley Forge, etc. Now, were places like China and Japan names frequently associated with trade disputes? in the post-1945 era, were they on the radar at all? I mean, Japan was largely closed. Mm-hmm. This was during the Tokugawa shogunate period. But were those countries on the radar screen at all? Or economically, you may have been talking about Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Well, I think it was mostly a Eurocentric trading system. There was trading with the Far East, but uh, I, I must confess I don't know how how much was going on. But it, it was a Euro centric system. 
Well, actually, some of this, Dan, we learned from a guest that we had uh, a few weeks ago, John Pomfret, who wrote the book about the 200 years of relations between the U.S. and China. And, you know, there was a fair amount of trading going on between uh, the U.S. and China, between many Western nations and China. And uh, these kind of disputes got came to a head in, in the Opium War in the 19th century, uh, you know, even before World War II. You know, it's just fascinating to keep reading Pomfret's book that, that the U.S. was developing a, a deeper trading relationship. And, and there was a huge amount of trade going on, the, and the rise of the Communist Party in China actually put an end to that for you know, a number of decades. So, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to see how, how you know, the ebb and flow, not just of globalization, but of China in the American psyche and American uh, trading world has been. And Rich, the economic dependence on France that Hamilton was concerned about, did that principally just reflect, well, my enemy's enemy is my friend? Or was Hamilton looking down the barrel here at political upheaval in France that happened in the decades following the revolution there? I, I, I think he was just worried about the US being dependent on anyone, basically. I mean, it was just France sort of... Uh, uh, was a big aid to, to the U.S. So I, don't, I don't think he viewed them viewed France as a threat per se, but it, it, he just realized that uh, it was necessary to have a sort of homegrown industry, a sort of nation military industrial complex, so to speak, because there were a lot of uh, bad hombres around. Now, if you had had a trade dispute in those days. What did you do? Did it actually become a trade war? Were trade wars actually real wars uh, that happened? I mean, today we have this whole set of agencies, international dispute resolution, courts, and think the WTO, all sorts of areas where sort of you kind of sort of raise a civil dispute and you can escalate it. But you know, countries don't seem to really go to war over those things, or do they, or did they? Well, you're pushing the limits of my knowledge here, but <laughs> but but there certainly was no, you know, huge international apparatus like there is today. Um, and as I as I mentioned earlier, there was kind of this uh, uh, tit for tat going on between the U.S. trying to sort of build up a textile industry and Britain trying to prevent it by preventing the uh, export of textile manu manufacturing machines, etc. But economic issues did lead to conflict. I mean, that was what the, uh, you know, the Tea Party was all about, right? Uh, you know, so uh, there wasn't anything like what we have today, where we have this sort of international overlay that, that sort of to keep the, uh, the, the economic peace, so to speak. So to take a break from the issue of trade wars and import substitution, uh, you also wrote in your story, Rich, about how of course, there are other other ways in which Trump and Hamilton are not so similar. And a key a key thing that you mention is is immigration. He's Hamilton is lionized in the show as as an immigrant from the Caribbean who came on a sh on a ship, came from nothing, and made it. You know, I think the cast of Hamilton, the creator, has 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 elevated this as a key issue. They even put out a a mixtape of of about 20 additional songs that are based on the show or you know or other original songs one of them is about is called immigrants we get the job done it's a, it's just a whole song about a line and it's it's a fairly aggressive uh, stance against you know the the trump and the other anti-immigrant policies we've seen so 
should we really avoid getting maybe too carried away in the similarities between Trump and Hamilton? Or is, is that something that, you know, is really something to look at in, in our time where you have one historical figure that's been elevated in Broadway and another one uh, that's, you know, that's the president right now? The story just tried to, you know, make the point that they're, that perhaps surprisingly given, as you say, the the approach each took to immigration or the way they both perceived on the subject, you know, surprise, they actually had some similarities. But I, I agree with you that, you know, you can, you can, you know, stretch the similarities so far that they snap back into your face. And hopefully the story didn't do that, but it is something you got to be careful about. And when you look back, whose vision ultimately won Jefferson's or Hamilton's? Well, Jefferson actually came came over to Hamilton's side later on. I think he he realized that, uh, but Hamilton wasn't totally successful. He 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 advocated his emphasis was as, as much on sap, subsidies uh, for sort of fledgling industries as it was for tariffs. But Congress was more inclined to pass the tariffs than they were spend the money to help the fledgling industries. But but Jefferson eventually came around to Hamilton's view that, that um, you know, the U.S. couldn't remain a totally agrarian society. I mean, that was okay when, when, uh, when we were the 13 colonies and you could, you know, import manufactured goods from Britain, etc. But uh, if if the U.S. was going to become a country, we would have to develop our own sort of manufacturing base, and then and that's you know does have echoes in the Trump campaign. Though to be be fair, you know Hillary Clinton was also emphasized that uh, you know the, the the role of manufacturing in her campaign. One 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 big difference though was, was pointed out by uh, um, Danny Roderick, who's a Harvard professor between Trump and Hamilton is that, you know, Hamilton was trying to sort of nurture fledgling industries. The U.S. didn't really have any manufacturing industry. He was trying to sort of bring these infants industries along. You know, Trump is trying to sort of protect industries that have been around for a long time, uh, steel, aluminum, autos. I mean, that's obviously important, but arguably that's not necessarily where the source of innovation and the real driving forces behind growth is going to come from in the U.S. in the future. Isn't it fair to say that to this day, the protection of the U.S. Uh, military supply industry continues? I mean, virtually everything the military uses, the planes, weapons, and so on. I'm, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, I, I feel like they're all still made in the USA and you know, through procurement policies and patriotism and whatnot. And the need to always sort of be, you know, the U.S.'s need to be prepared for war seems to be ingrained in the culture. You know, that's going to be this this kind of policy of supporting the weapons and defense industries in the U.S. seems to be something that actually could be Hamilton's legacy that continues today. <laughs> I'm, I'm no expert either, but I think that, that, that that's true. I mean, we have a whole... Uh, process here that uh, not to go to acronyms. There's, there's there's a group under the heading of the Treasury, uh, you know, where called CFIUS, which which basically uh, reviews takeovers by foreign companies to see if they're going to, you know, uh, um, endanger the uh, uh, security of the U.S. So if you have a you know Chinese company coming in to try and to buy a U.S. semiconductor company and that semiconductor company is is deemed as vital to uh, 
the U.S. Uh, military, then the CFIUS uh, process bans that Chinese company from taking over. So I think you're you're right. I think there's definitely enough material here for a Broadway sequel. Rich, <laughs> thanks for sharing this perspective with us. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. And until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com and our Bloomberg app, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Casts, and Stitcher. While you're there, please take a minute to rate and review the show so more people can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at at Scott Landman. Dan, you are at? Moss underscore eco. And Rich, you are at? RichMiller28. All right. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.